Well, good morning, Life Church. How are we this morning? I'm glad to see you today. If we don't know one another, that's a lot of us. Um, my name is James Sharp, and I am one of the elders here at Life Church. I'm also on the staff, and I have the privilege of opening the Word of the Lord with you this morning. And so, uh, grab your Bible um, or the Bible app on your phone or other device if you'd like to. We're going to be in First Corinthians chapter two this morning. I'll give you a couple of minutes to turn there and to find that. I wonder what it would take for the Lord to do a powerful work among us. I mean, I wonder what it would take for us to see and know and feel the Lord's power working both in our lives and in our church in a way that was real and tangible and undeniable and unmistakable. I mean, like, what are the ingredients of that? That's what I'm wondering. If you could boil that down to a recipe, what would you have to put into that recipe? If this were an equation, what would be the different variables in the equation? What would we need to pursue? What would we need to prioritize? What would we need to do? What would we need to accomplish in order to see a mighty and profound and powerful work of the Lord among us. And I'm talking about more than just, you know, that one Sunday when the vibe feels really good in the room and the band is really tight and it feels like whoever is speaking before you is speaking right to you. I'm talking about more than just the kind of work that can happen on a Sunday or even a month of Sundays. I'm talking about a transformative, life-changing kind of work wherein the people who begin to experience it come out very different on the end, at the end. What's required for that? What do we need in order to see that kind of work in our lives and among us? And not just live church as, as a church, but even you as an individual, what do you need to pursue? What habits or disciplines or devotions do you need to walk through if you're going to see the Lord show up in a mighty and unmistakable and powerful way? Have you thought about that? Have you wondered what it would take for God to really show up and really move in your life? I was thinking this week about Ezekiel chapter 30, 37 where um, the prophet Ezekiel, he sees this valley full of dry bones and then he sees the Holy Spirit of God breathe into those bones so they become animate, so they become living, walking, fleshy people. Um, they are brought from death to life. They are brought out of the grave as the song we sang a few moments ago spoke of. And I've just wondered, like, what would it take for the Lord to do something that, that looked like and felt like that among us? What's necessary if we're going to see and witness his power like that? Those are the questions that are at the very heart of the passage we're looking at in 1 Corinthians 2 this morning. Um, in church, I'll just tell you that um, I, I, have, I have felt the weight of this passage in a significant way this week because um, this is a passage uh, that gives a lot of clarity regarding who I should be, and who you should be, and who we should be. Um, and clarity's good, because it shows you what's clear, 
but that at the same time, like, you can't, you can't deny what you're called to after you have clarity like this passage offers us. And if, if we really want that mighty, pronounced, powerful work of the Lord, well, when we look at 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5 this morning, I think we'll walk away from this without a doubt about what our lives should look like as we pursue that together. I mean, I've just felt the weight of that this week. And so I pray now that as we turn to God's word, uh, just as Chris prayed, that he, he would open our eyes and open our ears so that we could truly hear and see his beauty and glory even as it's revealed here. And then I pray that we would leave with conviction and desire to pursue his power in our midst together. Those are big prayers. Let's read the word and we'll pray those things together and then we'll walk through this together this morning. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. He says this, he says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is God's word for us. Let's pray together, church. Lord, we do long to see you move and work in our lives and in our church in a significant and unmistakable way. We're sitting here, Lord, and we're thinking about all of the, all of the spaces in our lives where we'd love to just see you invade and transform and redeem and make whole and heal. And so, Lord, we're very aware of the fact that we need your strength and your power. We long for that. And I pray that in light of these verses, these words, that you inspired through the pen of your apostle, that you would make clear to us how those things can be pursued. So give us that clarity today, Lord. We love you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Acts tells us that the Apostle Paul went to Corinth and ministered in Corinth for about 18 months. He was in Corinth for a year and a half, and um, we can't deny the fact that when Paul was in Corinth, the Lord did a mighty work through him. That's why this is first and foremost relevant to us today, because if we want to see a mighty work of God, then here in this passage, we hear Paul describing the work that he did. And so if Paul did a mighty work, or I should say the Lord did a mighty work through Paul, and then Paul here tells us what that work looked like and what it didn't look like, then we have in this passage some hint as to what we must lean into and pursue if we're going to see a mighty work of God among us. So Paul describes his ministry in Corinth, and he starts by telling us what that ministry didn't look like, before he tells us what that ministry did look like. And so let's start with, with the didn't. Let's, let's begin with how Paul did not come to Corinth when he ministered among the Corinthians. You can see that in verse one. He says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, 
did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And then he says something similar in verse four. He says, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. And so in those two verses, Paul, he describes how he didn't come to Corinth. He did not come with lofty speech or wisdom, and he did not come with a speech and a message that were proclaimed in plausible words of wisdom. Now, what in the world does all of that mean? To understand it, we need to know a little bit about what ancient Corinth was like. In ancient Corinth, oratory, like public speaking, was a really important and really popular part of the culture. You could wander the streets of ancient Corinth and you would find, perhaps on every single street corner, somebody standing up and making a speech. And basically, the Corinthians would flock to whoever spoke most eloquently, whoever's wisdom seemed to be packaged in the most flowery and persuasive language. The Corinthians loved new ideas, but they loved new ideas most of all when they were presented in a way that seemed persuasive and convincing when they seemed wise. That was very popular. That's how you could win a crowd in Corinth pretty easily. If you showed up, it didn't necessarily even matter what you were saying as long as you said it well. Well, Paul says, when I came to you, that's not how I rolled. Right? I didn't come with eloquent words of wisdom. I came instead with weakness and brokenness and with a message that the world calls foolishness. He's already unpacked some of those ideas for us in the paragraphs we've studied over the last few weeks. But the key for us to think about here is simply that when Paul came to Corinth and ministered in Corinth and spoke in Corinth, he didn't act like the popular orators of his day. He didn't try to persuade with smooth talk. And he did that because he knew that relying on the way that the world works, which he will call human wisdom, was actually an obstacle to the power of God, not a vehicle of the power of God. So it's trying to persuade people with fancy talk, which the world tells you you need to do, that stands in the way of God's power working through your ministry. Instead, we should come in weakness and brokenness because that's then a vehicle for God's power working in your ministry. He said all this actually back in 1 Corinthians 1.17. If you just look back in your Bible, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Isn't that incredible? Like if he preached with words of wisdom, then he would empty the cross of its power. And so instead he had to come not the way the world wanted him to come, but in weakness and in humility and in brokenness so that the power of the cross could be realized in and through his ministry. Don't you wonder how Paul would restate this if he were standing before us today describing 18 months of ministry among us. I mean, we're not necessarily tempted to rely on plausible words of wisdom or lofty speech or wisdom in order to try to win people to Christ. But I think we are tempted to rely on a lot of other things that fit into that same category of human wisdom. I mean, how are we trying to follow the ways of the world in order to reach people with a message that is not of this world. I think Paul could expose that in us pretty quickly. 
He'd point to the means that we're relying on that perhaps in the end actually rob the cross of its power. He'd say, I did not come to you preaching a message of Christ crucified with fair trade coffee and a music ensemble that was really tight and a social media campaign that was really on point and people on stage who were dressed in really stylish clothes with faux hawks and tattoos and skinny jeans. Not that any of those things are bad. Just hear me well. I mean, maybe, maybe skinny jeans are bad. I think the jury's still out. But not that any of the rest of those things are problematic. But if we rely on those things, if we think here's the formula, right, the coffee and the band and the social media campaign, this is what we need in order for the power of God to show up. That's the problem. Paul's very clear that relying on any worldly means to reach people robs the cross of its power. And so if you want God's power, you must not rely on those things. He didn't rely on those things. And that is one part of why his ministry was so powerful. But only part. The other part of the reason why his ministry was so powerful is because of what he did do when he was in Corinth. He talks about that in verse 3. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And then in verse 4, he says, I was with you in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. So I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And by the way, the book of Acts tells us that we're talking about real weakness and real fear and real trembling. Paul was actually in tears, according to Acts 18.9, before he spoke in Corinth because he was afraid of what was going to happen to him after he spoke. So weakness and fear and trembling. But then notice how that goes with verse 4, in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Because the Bible tells us that those things go together. Human weakness leads to the demonstration of God's power. God loves to work through weak people. Human weakness, it's never an obstacle to him. He never shies away from using people who don't rely on their own strength or on the wisdom of the world in order to accomplish his purposes. He loves to work through weakness. Now, we don't actually know for sure what Paul's weakness was. Perhaps it was a physical ailment of some kind. Perhaps it was the thorn in his flesh that he describes very famously in 2 Corinthians 12. And so speculating about what exactly Paul's weakness looked like isn't easy for us to do, but we can know for sure that the way Paul proclaimed the gospel was consistent with the very message of the gospel itself. That's been one of the key themes of these few paragraphs of 1 Corinthians The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners through a crucified Savior. It's a message about weakness, a message about a king who reigns, not through a crushing military victory, but through being crushed himself on the cross for the sake of his people. It's a king who reigns through death and defeat. And so that's why Paul has said in chapter 1 that God chose weakness to shame what is strong in the world and foolishness to shame what is wise in the world. Now here in chapter 2, he just builds on that to say God's power has worked through his ministry because his ministry method lined up with the ministry message. He recognized the weakness of the cross, and so he came weakly. He recognized that the cross is foolishness to the world, and so he came like a fool. He didn't take this message of weakness and package it in human strength. He said, that doesn't work. This is not consistent in itself. 
And so if you want the power of the cross, if you want to see the power of God revealed, Paul would say, emphasize that God saves weak people through a Savior who in his life appeared weak and foolish to the world. And he saves people by the declaration of that message announced by weak messengers. He came weakly with brokenness, in fear and much trembling, he says. And that's why his ministry was so powerful. Because his message and his method, they lined up with one another. There's one more reason, though, why his ministry was so powerful. That's because of the commitment that he made. That's the third thing I'd like to show us here. Look at verse two with me. He says in verse two, this is his great commitment. He says, for I decided to know Nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he's talking about his message. He said, when I was with you, I wasn't distracted by other things. I didn't get pulled in other directions. I didn't run down this rabbit trail or that rabbit trail. No, we stayed with our focus on Christ and him crucified. Now when he says that, I don't think that he means that all he ever did when he was in Corinth was preached like the same basic gospel presentation, here's what you must do in order to be saved. I don't think that's what Paul means. But I think Paul means that in his teaching in Corinth and surely elsewhere, everything that he did, everything that he spoke, it centered around the cross and he showed his people how to live life in the shadow of the cross. And so when he's talking about marriage, he's talking about how the gospel and the cross influence and shape and impact marriage. When he's talking about forgiveness, he's talking about how the cross impacts and influences and shapes the way that we forgive one another. When he's talking about work and vocation, he's talking about how the gospel changes the way we view those things and gives our work and our vocation a purpose and a meaning that it otherwise would not have. When he's talking about hard things like racial reconciliation or deeply rooted sin issues in our lives, he's talking about how the cross impacts all of those things. He's just constantly summoning his hearers to live life in the shadow of the cross. And so he resolves to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. Now near the end of his life, Paul, same writer, he warned his young protege, Timothy. He warned him this. This is 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. He said, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now friends, surely this is true today. I mean, it was true, I think, even in Paul and Timothy's day, but it's true today that people are easily tempted to listen for something other in Christ crucified. In fact, let's not put that on somebody else. Let's put that on ourselves. We are tempted to listen for something other than Christ crucified. We want to hear something else. Our ears are itching for something else. And I'll put it squarely on my shoulders. I am tempted at times to want to tell you something other than Christ and him crucified. 
All of us were in danger of getting bored with the gospel, of craving some other message or some other piece of advice. We have needs in our lives. We feel stresses and burdens, and so we come through the door, and we're thinking maybe there's some solution to these things, and we're not always inclined to look to the gospel to solve those problems. And so we, we do. We want to drift in some other direction. But Paul's ministry in Corinth was powerful because he didn't drift. He never stopped showing people about the person and work of Jesus. He never stopped showing people what God's word said about what God had done through Jesus to save sinners. He never stopped explaining to people the life that God called them to in light of Christ and him crucified. He didn't worry about keeping things fresh. He didn't worry about always seeming relevant. And he didn't worry, frankly, about the needs that the people in his audience felt as they walked through the door. No, he worried about what Christ had done. And he pointed people to that again and again and again. And because of that, God's power was revealed in his ministry. There's one more thing we need to see here before we talk about how to apply all of this. I also just want to point to what that powerful work of God actually accomplished in Corinth. Because that's the main thing that Paul wants to say. He's, he's talked about how he didn't come. He didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom He didn't come with a speech and a message that were implausible words of wisdom. He did come instead in weakness and fear and trembling, in a demonstration of the spirit and of power, knowing nothing except Christ crucified. Now, why did he do all of that? Verse 5 tells us, so that your faith, our faith, might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Simply put, Paul wanted the Corinthians' faith and our faith to rest on God's power and not his own. Right? He never wanted somebody to listen to him preach and to say, man, Paul's awesome. He wanted people to listen to him preach and say, Jesus is awesome. And so he was eager to build people's faith, not on his ministry, but on Christ and on the power of God. Friends, it's possible to build the faith of people on a foundation that will, in the end, destroy the building that's built on top of that foundation. Right? If your faith rests in a person, it is vulnerable. If your faith is built on anyone who is merely human, then the superstructure of that faith can crumble beneath you. And so Paul went to Corinth in weakness so that that would, so that that would happen. He went in weakness so that no one would say, I trust in Paul. He went in weakness so that the Corinthians would rest their faith on the unshakable and immovable foundation of God's power. I pray that your faith never rests on the gifts or wisdom or ministry of any merely human leader. I pray that it rests upon the only foundation that can never be moved, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ as it's applied to your life and your heart by his Spirit. And as his power is revealed in you. Now, I want us to talk with the time that we have left about how we can and should apply this passage. I've said it's, it's a really significant passage in my mind. And so because of that, I want to offer us three directions of application. I want us to talk about what this means for life church, for all of us together as a body of Christ. But before I do that, I want to spend some time thinking about what this means 
for each and every one of us as individuals. But even before I do that, I want to spend a few minutes just considering with you what this passage means for me. For me, the person whom we trust with this face microphone to talk at you for 40 minutes every Sunday. Like, what does this passage mean for me? And, and as I, I talk about that, I, I do want to be clear about a couple of things, um, just to make sure that we're all on the same page about this. Um, first and foremost, I'm going to apply this to me with the knowledge and understanding that I am not the leader of Life Church. I know that. I really hope you know that also. Several of you have actually asked me about the way I introduce myself when I get started on Sundays because I've been saying, hi, I'm James. I'm one of the elders here. I'm also on the staff. And I'm choosing to introduce myself to you that way because it's very important for me that you know that I'm not in charge here. Right? I'm one of the shepherds that the Lord has entrusted to lead the people of Life Church, but I'm not by myself in charge. And that's very good news for me and for you. Right? The Lord in his goodness has revealed to us in the New Testament how he wants a church to be led. That leadership should come through a group or a plurality is the fancy word if you just want to impress your friends later. A plurality of shepherds. Sometimes we call those shepherds pastors. The word the New Testament uses most often is elder. And I am one of the elders here at Life Church, but I'm not the elder here at Life Church. And so that's really good news, again, for me and for you. It means I can't destroy this whole thing on my own, and it means that I don't have to carry this whole thing on my own. And so praise the Lord for both of those realities. Having said that, I am the guy who's going to stand up here the majority of the time with the Britney Spears mic on his face, talking to you about what the Bible says. And so I do think it's appropriate for us to think a little bit about the ministry that I'm called to do here in light of what this passage says. I mean, I'm the pastor of teaching and vision here. So how does this passage shape the way we understand teaching and vision and the life of our church? What does this passage call me to? So let me give you something that it calls me to not do, and then let me give you something that it calls me to do. And though I'm talking about my role and my ministry here, of course you're going to see that even as we talk through these things, there are things for all of us to do. And so let's start with what I, James Sharp, must not do in light of what this passage says. I must not stray into relying too much on my own wisdom, gifts, abilities, or upon any other earthly thing. That's what Paul did, right? He said, I didn't come in this way. I didn't come relying upon the things of the world. Instead, I relied upon the power of God. And brothers and sisters, I know my own heart. I need you to pray that I would maintain that very same commitment. Now, I know myself. I, I know that I'm not likely to wake up one morning and to think that the key for reaching people for Christ in our city is for us to, to transform our worship experience into this like laser light show where there's fog billowing out of our room as people walk through the door. I'm not fearful that we're suddenly going to start to follow the wisdom of the world like that. I'm also really not fearful that I'm going like, to shift into this mode where I just constantly tell people what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. But I, I know myself, that's not really going to tempt me. I'm not going to be tempted toward thinking that the key to ministry success in the city of Salisbury is for me just to tell you, have, tell you how to have your best life now. I know that's not really going to tempt me. 
But what is likely to be a temptation for me? It, it is a temptation for me. I will struggle with the temptation to rely too much on my own intellect and my own gifts, my own experiences, and my own strength. See, the danger for James Sharp is drifting into patterns of subtle but serious self-reliance in ministry. And friends, that's just as wicked in the Lord's eyes as relying on any other worldly means to get the Lord's work done. Right? That's just as despicable to God. And so I, pr- I just ask you this morning, like, would you pray for me about this? Would you ask God to do whatever is necessary to make me humbly and desperately dependent upon him? Because if we are going to see a mighty work of God in our lives and in our church, that will never, ever, ever be because of James Sharp. Like, you know that, right? I know that. And so we need to pray that I won't subtly act like any of that relies on me in any way. So I need you to pray that for me. Because I must not act like this is contingent on me at all. That's what I must not do. Here's what I must do. If the Apostle Paul thought that it was wise to know nothing among the Corinthians but Christ and him crucified, then surely that should be the direction of the work that I have to do here also. Regardless of the pressures that I feel, pressures from itching ears who are eager for something fresh and new, pressure to seem more relevant or connected or engaging, Pressure that comes because of how many people are in the room or how many people aren't in the room. The one commitment that I must make is that I would remain committed to knowing Christ and him crucified. And I ask you to pray that I would remain faithful to that too. I ask you to pray that I would grow more deeply in love with the gospel so that it never ceases to be a joy for me to stand before you and show you the glories of the gospel. And I'm serious, friends, when I ask you to pray for me in these ways. I mean, imagine one day in the near future or in the distant future when we might witness a mighty work of God in our midst precisely because you prayed for me in those two ways. Imagine what the Lord might do in revealing his power and his mighty work because we prayed that we as a church and that I, James Sharp, remain committed to knowing Christ and him crucified. That's for me. Now let's talk about how this applies to each and every one of us. And so I'm, I'm included here too, just to be clear. This is application for all of us as individuals. In light of what Paul says here, I think it's clear that each and every one of us must strive to keep the cross at the very center of our lives. I mean, this is why Paul says, I resolved to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. Right, if he, if he didn't, ha- he had to resolve it. You know, he had to make a commitment to it, which means that even Paul, on some level, was tempted to go in a different direction. And if Paul, on some level, was tempted to go in a different direction, then you and I are also. Like, nobody's gonna stumble into a Christ-centered life. Nobody's going to wake up one day and the cross is going to be at the very center of their life without them really applying a lot of real and serious effort in that direction. The broader principle here is that nothing drifts in the right direction. 
Right? Nothing drifts towards order in life. I mean, you see a million examples of that in your life. I see a million examples of that in my life. I shared this in the first service. I hadn't planned to, but it seemed like a, 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 just a timely illustration of this. Um, so right now, my family and I, we're, we're new to the area, and we're not yet living in the home that we think, at least, we're going to be living in long term. Um, and so we're living out in West Rowan County with some very loving and lovely people. Um, but our home, long term, is in East Rowan County. And so we went ahead and enrolled our kids in school in East Rowan County so that they could get established there so we wouldn't have to move them again whenever it is time for us to move into our long term home. And so that's been fine. Um, except for the fact that it means that every morning as we're trying to get our kids to school, we have about a 30-minute commute from where we're living to where our kids go to school. And uh, so it's, it's comical, actually, to watch us try to execute that. Um, 6.40 or so every morning, like, my wife is throwing lunch boxes and backpacks and jackets at my children, and I'm shoving them into my Honda Civic to try to get out the door. And um, you know, the last thing that we do for every child is we hand them the breakfast that they are going to eat on their way to school, which is fine. Now, y'all don't know me very well. One thing that maybe you should know about me is that, like, neat and orderly and tidy, that's important to James Sharp. I don't care if you're neat and orderly and tidy. You can be a hot mess, and that's fine with me, but I need my stuff to be clean. Like, that's just, that's just me. And so, you know what's not clean? My children eating breakfast in my car every morning. <laughs> when I eat a piece of toast, all of that toast makes it into my mouth. When my son Isaac eats a piece of toast, like 90% of it disintegrates in the air and then like lands somehow on the seat, you know? And so like every day my kids get in the car and I'm like, here we go again. And they, we drive and they're eating and their crumbs are falling down. <laughs> I'm just like, whatever. We get to school, I drop them off. I drive here to the church building and I open my doors up and I like pick up all of their trash and all of the mess that they've made. Every day. Well, like Thursday, I was like, I- I've had it. Like, I need to do something about this. And so I spent a good solid 30 minutes doing a deep clean on the backseat of my car, which was great. It was clean. It was orderly. And then Friday happened. And we drifted right back towards disorder because nothing stays there, right? Nothing stays orderly. It always drifts away from the center. And that's, that's true of your walk with the Lord. It's true of my walk with the Lord also. Right? We don't land in a Christ-centered spot in life and stay anchored there forever. It just doesn't happen that way. We have to resolve to know Christ and him crucified. We have to resolve to keep our lives centered on the cross, or we will drift away from that. Now, as I just have pastored people for a number of years, I've seen two primary ways people drift from the cross as the center of their life. The first way that we typically drift is we lose sight of the cross because we begin to believe the lies of our own moral performance. What I mean is we begin to believe that we're not really as bad as the Bible tells us we are. I mean, nobody denies that they're a sinner at this point, right? Like, we get that, yeah, we're not perfect. We could be better. But we don't recognize that we're the broken, weak, vile people that Scripture tells us we are apart from the grace of God. And the reason we don't realize that is because we take our eyes off of the holiness of God and we start to put our eyes on our unsaved, sinful neighbors. Like we just think about the people in our lives and we say, you know what, I'm not perfect, but I'm least, at least I don't drink like Tom does. You know what, I'm not perfect, but at least I don't gossip the way that Sally gossips. I'm not perfect, but at least my life is a little bit more in order than Nancy's life is. And we look at our unsaved neighbors and we look at their sin 
And we essentially offer their sinfulness as a sacrifice of atonement to the Lord. And we say, look, God, I know I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not Tom. At least I'm not Sally. At least I'm not Nancy. I forgot the names I said a minute ago, so this might not be the right ones. But you get my point. Like, we just look at other people and we think, because I'm better than they are on the outside, then I must be okay. And we, we drift away from a life that is anchored in the cross of Jesus Christ. But do you know what's ridiculous about that is that, like, our eyes are looking in the wrong direction. We're looking at our unsaved neighbors when we ought to be looking at the holiness of the Lord. When we look at the holiness of the Lord, then we're going to be continually convicted, not of how much better we are than Tom and Nancy and Sally, but of how broken and empty and filthy we are. I mean, just think about the Bible. Every time somebody in the Bible comes face to face with the glory and holiness of God, they're undone by that. They're blown up by that. Like Isaiah the prophet, he sees the Lord sitting on his throne, and his immediate reaction is not, God, at least I'm better than Tom. His reaction is, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. And so he's driven back to the mercy that his life requires because he sets his eyes on the holiness of God. Friends, we drift from the cross. We drift from a cross-centered life when we begin to think too much about how we compare to others. and We take our eyes off of the holiness of the Lord. That causes us to believe the lie that we're doing okay, that we're not that bad. And none of us are gonna delight in the cross if we're walking through life thinking, man, I'm good. Now we'll delight in the cross and live lives that are centered on the cross when we walk through life realizing how much we need mercy, how undeserving of that mercy we are, and when we're moved to love and worship God because of the mercy that he's shown us. So don't believe the lie of your moral performance. That's just one way that we drift from the cross the other way. We drift from the cross when we begin to think of the cross only as a matter of past substitution and not a matter of daily execution. When we begin to think of the cross as just something that happened in the past to take care of our sins, and we stop thinking about the fact that the cross summons us every single day to deny ourselves and take up a cross and follow Jesus. See, Jesus, he is our savior, but he's also our Lord. And often we're tempted to desire the benefits of the cross. In other words, we want Jesus to be our savior when we want to be Lord. We don't want him to be Lord. And that reveals the fact that we've never really understood the cross to begin with. Because the cross is necessary precisely because we tried to be Lord over our lives and made complete messes of that. We aren't worthy to be Lord over our lives. We don't deserve to sit on that throne. There is one who does. And it's only when we rightly understand the cross that we'll put the Lord on the throne where he belongs and we'll get off of it ourselves. And so if the cross is to you, yes, a matter of past substitution, but not a matter of daily execution, then to bring the cross back to the center of your life, you need to think about the word of the Lord, the commands of the Lord, the way of the Lord, the will of the Lord. And you need to live your life in submission to those things. I mean, have you done that? Like, have you truly surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus? Is every day of your life marked by new and deeper submission to his commands? Like, do you deny yourself, your desires, your ambitions, your dreams, your longings, 
in order to follow him and serve him. I pray that you would. All right, here's the last application. This will be quick. Just for us as a church. Like how does life church live in light of these five verses? Friends, I just say this morning, let us resolve to be a people where God's power shows up because we live in weakness and not in strength. Let us resolve to be a people who walk before one another in humility and not in pride. Let's resolve to be a people who live with one another in brokenness and repentance and vulnerability and not empty religiosity. Let's resolve to be a people who walk before the Lord and before one another just as Paul did. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And let's do that so that we might see the power of God work in our lives and in our church in a way where we know it's him and we know that he's doing a work that only he can do. Pray with me to that end. Lord, we ask you to move. But we know first that we must get out of your way so that you can move, Lord. And so we pray that you would make us humble. We pray that you would make us weak. We pray that you would make us fools. All so that we might treasure Jesus and him crucified above all else. Lord, where our hearts are faint, we pray that you would give us strength to know Christ and him crucified. Where we begin to drift, we pray that you would give us strength to know Christ and him crucified. We are prone to wander, Father, but you and your grace bring us back. And so we pray even this morning that you would, that you would center our hearts in Christ and that we would boast in Christ and in Christ alone as your people, that we might witness your power and give you glory. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.